God, we're desperate for you to speak through your word. Lord, I believe that you have have spoken to me, laid things on my heart, uh, spoken through your word. It's your word that will not return void. My words have no power in themselves, have no authority. Lord, I lay these notes before you. I give you the right to change, to shape this message from your word in any way you see fit. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit in this room. Both to speak through me, but also to penetrate our hearts. Lord, don't let these words that were directed toward um, the Jewish hearer simply fall off of us because we think they're for someone else. We know that all of your scripture is profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. Lord, that's what we would do, ask that you would do here this morning. Speak to us, Father. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in this section of Romans. With, we've coined the case for condemnation against man. We've looked at the fact that every person is equally in need of salvation by grace through faith. And the point of this section is in Romans is explaining that it is the righteousness of God that we need in place of our sin. And that can only be gained by His grace through faith. Because of our sinful hearts and our sinful actions, we will never achieve a relationship with God on our own. We're told in verse 18 of chapter 1, and this, this applies to all of those that we look at in this section, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And, and in the style of the rhetoric and the than the forms of logically arguing of that day, Paul is arguing against three, as a prosecutor, as we've talked about, in, in a hypothetical courtroom, he's arguing against three hypothetical defendants that, that represent all of lost humanity. The first of these that we've looked at is, was the self-centered, depraved person. And the second that we looked at two weeks ago was the self-righteous, moral person. Today's defendant that we're looking at, they think that they have more knowledge of God than any of the others. And that, in part, is their danger, that they do have more knowledge of God than any of the others. 
And as we're warned in, in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. And this defendant is certainly the case. And sadly, because of their knowledge of God, in walking in relationship with Him through the law as a people, they're the least likely to see their unrighteousness and to suppress the truth of the fact that they are unrighteous before God. So we're looking at the self-confident Jewish person which, which Paul writes to here. The person that Paul, this hypothetical defendant here that Paul is, is directing toward is ethnically Jewish and they're thinking that this is, is just as good as having a relationship with God. And the saddest part here is realizing our sinfulness before God is the first step of the gospel. And I hope you feel and see the sadness here of this situation of a people that would be so close to the truth and to salvation. But for it to cause them to not be able to recognize their sinfulness, that they're as far away as anybody else. Self-confidence in general is not a bad thing. Theodore Roosevelt said, believe you can and you're halfway there. Applied to many things, this is a good statement. Marcus Aurelius in his meditations, he says, look well unto thyself. There is a source of strength which will always spring up if thou wilt always look. And Tina Fey in her book, Bossy Pants, says, don't waste your energy trying to change opinions. Do your thing and don't care if they like it. This is going to be a good statement, especially if we're talking about following the Lord's leading, following, having confidence in, in what God has told us to do. But self-confidence toward God, having a sense that, you know, God, I appreciate you so much that, that I'm going to work for my relationship with you. That's not a good thing. That's arrogance of the worst kind. I did some thinking about how in the Old Testament, why is it that the, the, the disease of leprosy would be considered so unclean. <clears throat> and this is just in my estimations, my meditations on this and things, but certainly it's an unclean in the, in the fact that it's so contagious. But think about it as in, rela in relationship to a self-confidence towards God that keeps someone from seeing their need, feeling their need for salvation. Because what does leprosy do? It deadens the nerves it deadens the nerve so much that a person will be disfigured 
from simple abrasions and friction and, and rubbing on their skin, which because of nerves would warn them that'll damage you. But, but the sad picture of a person that has had leprosy for years shows a worn away fingers, worn away facial features because of the deadening of nerves. And self-confidence before God in our fallen state is like a leprosy of the heart where we're deadened to our need for salvation. We're deadened to, to the pain of our sin and the consequence of it. For religious Jewish people, there was a special danger toward self-confidence. Having a special relationship with God as a people, having his, an, a, an embodiment in some ways of his moral code in the law, they tended to think they had God boxed in. And further down, having the temple there in Jerusalem, which was called Mount Zion, they thought they had God in a box. And we, we, in a lot of ways, have this same danger. It's a part of being involved in the church of America. We have this danger of thinking, I've got this God thing figured out. But the question is always, are you walking in relationship with Him by His grace? I hope you hear this again and again. It's not, am I, am I going to church? Okay? It's not, am I giving? Am I, am I doing the things that I should? Am I opening up the Bible and, and, and reading it? It's, are you walking in relationship with Him by His grace? David, when confronted with his sin... When confronted with his need for forgiveness and salvation, even as a Jew that had the temple, that any time of the night he had the authority to go down and say, I feel guilty about something. Let's go sacrifice at the temple. Keep the lights on for me. Keep the lamps burning. Anytime. When confronted with his sin, he told God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. The first step toward salvation for anyone is a broken and contrite, convicted heart of our sin and our need for him. And understand as we look at this, as we read through these verses, that the same is true for both the Jewish people that Paul is speaking toward and for us. So we pick up in verse 17 of chapter 2. It says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve of what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, 
a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed, indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if someone were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, let me just point out as we, as we read through these, Paul in this rhetorical style is speaking the questions that he might be challenged with from this person. Okay? So, so this is a question shot back to him, hypothetically. So he says, what if some were unfaithful? Going back to verse 3. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. I want you to see in these verses, without Jesus' righteousness, we are condemned. Without Jesus' righteousness, we are condemned. Remember that we were told in chapter 1, and this is what Paul is laying out in the entirety of these chapters, the the gospel itself is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And it is the power of God for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It must be the power of God because we're powerless in ourselves. 
So when I say without Jesus' righteousness we are condemned, I mean that we standing before God in our own best attempts are not righteousness enough, righteous enough. But the picture that we're given over and over again in Scripture is that Jesus paid the price for our sins, that every sin you commit had a consequence laid on Jesus. And he took that shame, and he took that guilt, and he took that consequence, and he poured out his almighty self to pay for it. And he gives us the opportunity that in accepting a relationship with God through him, Scripture says that I then I am crucified with him. And I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. We're, we're, it's as if we were on the cross with him and paid for our sins. And we're told that, that as Jesus rose from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. And we have his righteousness before God. And without his righteousness clothing us, we still stand condemned. And we'll, we'll run into the word several times in Romans, the term justify, which means God declaring someone righteous. And the only way that happens is if he looks at them and he sees the righteousness of Christ. As John Stott puts it, it's God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. And these verses, as we pointed out, is, are written to Jews who are rejecting Christ as their Messiah. They're saying, my being a Jew is good enough. Don't miss from it from in these verses, because we're not Jewish here, the warnings against approaching God by religion rather than in relationship through Christ. So the first principle that we're looking at here is the fact that without Jesus' righteousness, we are condemned no matter what we claim, no matter what we say, no matter what we expect of ourselves. No matter what good faith we put on it. Notice that Paul tells them, the scenario here is that this, this person is Jewish, relying on the law, law boasting in, in a somewhat relationship with God because of their being Jewish, knowing his will, approving what is excellent. Because why? Because they're instructed from the law. He goes on to say, if you're a, you, you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish. These three terms, blind, uh, foolish, uh, those in darkness, these were Jewish terms for Gentiles. In other words, these were Jewish terms for those who did not have the law and who did not have a, the special relationship with God that the Jewish people had as a people. But, but Scripture is 
seeking to, God is, is looking to penetrate their hearts with the question of, but where are you individually with me? Because you don't get into a relationship with me except through my son. Just, just as kind of way to remind you, the Jewish people had a special relationship with God because of him covenanting himself to them. And a major part of that is in the relationship that he began with Abraham and telling them from his descendants, he would bring for himself a people and that there would be a land for them and that there would be many descendants because of it. This is where the, the uh, Muslim-Jewish conflict uh, where the uh, Islamic people bring this dividing point down because the Islamic people believe that Ishmael was God's covenant son. Scripture, biblical history, this going back to, doing the math here, around 3000 BC is telling us that Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, which are the 12 tribes of Israel, are God's covenant people. And a part of that Mosaic, I'm sorry, not, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham, was that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Speaking of the fact that the Messiah would come, and this was unpacked more and more as God made further covenant with these descendants. But a part of the unfolding of that relationship with having brought them out of the land of Egypt after 400 years under Egyptian rule and coming out with very idolatrous ideas and very sinful practices, he leads them to Mount Sinai and he gives to them the law. I I like how it was said, and I've shared this before, that the book of Exodus describes how God got... Israel out of Egypt. And the book of Leviticus, which describes the Mosaic law, describes how God got Egypt out of Israel. And God gave to them a godly culture. He gave to them godly rules. He gave to them rules and regulations in a relationship with him. But, but the, uh, the Easter egg, if you will, within this relationship was in the fact that you'll never be able to achieve the righteousness that's embodied in this simple law, these 600-some commands. And this in itself is just a small picture of the vast, immeasurable righteousness of God, which we'll never be able to achieve in our own selves. And at the time of Paul's writing these very words, there were some Jewish leaders that were even elevating the Mosaic law as being better than God himself. Don't worry about what God's doing. That doesn't matter. We have His law. We see in verses 21 where he says, You who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Which interestingly would be the picture of a person's heart. Oh, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. Oh, man, I so want what it is that they're worshiping. 
You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And Paul's accusations here have to do with the Jewish people as a whole. It's not, you know, okay, you adulterer, you're out. You thief, you're out. You know, it's not like that. But he's saying, look at your history. Has it really worked? Because I look at it and I see hypocrisy. His goal here is to get them to examine their desires, their hearts. A definition of hypocrisy could be claiming to have moral standards or beliefs, but not living by those standards or beliefs. You know what? To one degree or another, the gospel frees me to be able to say, to some degree, I am a hypocrite. Now I am in Christ. I stand in his righteousness. And I'm glad that my degree of hypocrisy, saying I, I live by us, or, or saying I believe in this standard of holiness, but to one degree or another not living up to that, because I stand in Christ, I can say in safety, and I hope I can say that in the safety of my relationship with you, that to one degree or another, I'm a hypocrite. But a person claiming I am righteousness enough to have a relationship with God, if they see any level of hypocrisy in that, they better know that no matter what they claim, God sees it. Just in letting you know what he means when he says that the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you, he's referring to statements in the Old Testament uh, that are kind of ex- uh, describing how God's people would be deported from his land because of their unrighteousness. Dating back to uh, the time in 700 BC, when finally, I'm sorry, 586 BC when finally the Babylonians break through the wall of Jerusalem and begin deporting God's people away. Prior to that, even with the ramparts going up the walls, even with the Jerusalem surrounded, false prophets and evil priests were saying to the people, God will never allow these people in these walls. Why? Because we have his temple. It's almost like we've got God you know, by the arm. He'll never allow this temple to fall. When prophet after prophet was saying, your sin stands before God, will you not repent? And so statements were made like in Isaiah 52, 5, now therefore what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. The rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. In Ezekiel 36, 20 through 21, when they came to the nations wherever they came, speaking of being deported away, they profaned my holy name in that people, and in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and that they had to go out of his land? But I have concern for my holy name, God says, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. 
So that's what he means when he says, my name is despised among the Gentiles. It's blasphemed because of you. And he's saying, don't you see? Your righteousness is so far below what I am. And they must see this if they're to have a relationship with him through grace. I thought this week about a funny situation in our home. We were living in Rapid City. We had hardwood floors, and these and our and our dining room was was just on the other side of a kitchen peninsula from our kitchen, and and um, one night, or as a morning, Kelly and I were were in our bedroom talking, and and Zachary, you know, who's about was about this tall at the time. Um, I thought about showing you a picture, but he was so darn cute you wouldn't listen to anything I was saying, but. <laughs> We just hear this, it's exactly what it sounded like, and I'm like, what in the world is that? So I kind of go around, come out of our bedroom, kind of walk around the corner, and I look, and I see little Zachary with his arms, you know, against a chair, and he's kind of pushing it, and as he does, the, ch- the feet of the chair are making sound on the hard wood, going, and he kind of paws. He stopped. He's trying to push the chair over to the cabinet that's at the goodies in it. <laughs> but he realizes it's making a noise, so he's pausing. <laughs> Pushing it a little further. And I'm just standing here watching him, <laughs> just laughing within myself. And that's a picture to me, and I hope it's a picture to you, of how we're not getting away with anything. You know, sin, our flesh, it lies to us thinking God doesn't care. God doesn't know. God can't see. But he does. You know, he's that loving father standing there next to us just kind of like, do you really think you're getting away with anything here? And for the person that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, he's looking at him thinking, do you really think you have to do this? And do you realize that the very fact that you think you're satisfying me keeps you from me? Statistically, we see again and again The Christians on moral issues are virtually the same as unbelievers. I think part of it is thinking either God doesn't see or God doesn't care. Hear this. Whether you are guilty of self-confidence that keeps you from salvation or just that keeps you from growth, If you tend to treat God like he's stuck behind some soundproof wall and can't hear what you're saying or what even what you're thinking or knowing what your desires are, if you tend to treat God like he's bound to your forgiveness in Christ and can't judge you like he would like to or something, God is that loving father 
watching you push the chair across the floor to try to get what you want apart from him. Whether it's something wrong that you shouldn't be pursuing or something that's right that you should be seeking from his hand. You were called to live in relationship with the one who knows your deepest thoughts and desires and to live in his righteousness. Surrender yourself to him. Recognize your sin as being sin. That's what confession means. Recognize your self-reliance as being arrogance. See yourself. See for yourself what he can do with a broken and contrite heart under Christ's righteousness. Stop claiming to be something that you're not. We also see here that without Jesus' righteousness, we are condemned no matter what rituals we perform. He says, for circumcision is indeed of no value if you obey the law. I'm sorry. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Understand that circumcision for the Jewish people was a symbolic of being set apart in relationship with God. It was symbolic of Him choosing them to walk with them in a special way. And an expression of that relationship was in keeping the law. Paul goes on to talk about how, you know, the person who is uncircumcised, i.e. the Gentile, if they do a better job of living in my righteousness than you, they're going to be condemning you. And the idea there is they're not sitting in judgment over you. It's like two people running a race. If one person wins, it makes the other the loser. He's saying, do you really want to put yourself in a situation where You're matching up against somebody else? Because he's saying, basically, if you don't keep the law, it's as if you got no relationship with God, if that's the route you're going to go, he's saying. It was, it was confounding to them to read the idea that the Gentile who walks in relationship with God is better than the circumcised Jew without relationship with him. This makes the, the person reading this, the, this defendant would have been sitting there just jaw open like, what are you talking about? Because the practice was basically, like I said, To say, I'm a part of his people. He's got to keep me on board. He goes on in verse 21. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise, meaning the one who has a relationship with God by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is, from, is not from man, 
but from God. Moses complained that Israel needed hearts that had been circumcised, hearts that had been set apart, that they, that they needed within them a desire to follow God, not just some way of rationalizing, yes, this is the law, but, you know, we've decided that if you do this here, it's just as good as if you've met this standard here. And, and among each other, it's like, yes, that, I agree, that's following the law. You, brother, you're following the law. I'll give you that. You, you know, that's the idea of, of this, of this um, how we as a people can kind of rationalize our, the standard lower and lower and lower as long as we're still patting each other on the back along the way. And that's very, very dangerous when it comes to what a relationship with God is about in terms of initiating that. Modern examples of this can be following certain sacraments. Well, I've done A, B, C, D, E. Yes, brother, yep, you're good. You're good with God. Uh, There's some even uh, traditions that would say, you know, we gather all the teenagers of a certain age, we put them through a class, then we confirm them. You're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Nothing else to worry about, folks. We have confirmed You know, <clears throat> even baptism can be treated this way. And let me say, baptism is an important act of obedience. It, it should be a first step of obedience in receiving Christ as our Savior. It shouldn't be treated, though, as a ritual which secures salvation. You see the difference there? It, it can become law. It can become, well, we baptized you. We remember that. So don't you ever worry that you, that you didn't really receive Christ as your Savior. It could be more of that, don't worry, we got God, you know, with this ritual we did. That being said, baptism is so significant to, to say, why, why would I want that ceremony? It's like coming to your fiancé and saying, you know, Let's just, let's just do whatever minimally we need to do to say we're married. Why do we need a ceremony? But, but the bottom line is we baptize because God gave us baptism and said, do this. Do this when someone receives Christ as their Savior. But it shouldn't be a ritual which we think this made him a believer. Otherwise, it's no different than what these Jews are being accused of. It, it, to that degree, even saying, um, you know, say this prayer. If you say this prayer, God, I'm a sinner, please forgive me because of what Jesus did and accept me as your child, amen. Oh, wait, 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 say in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, good. You've got God. You know, he, he's, got to, he's got to give you that relationship. fact is, Scripture tells us God's Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. The biggest question is, are you walking in relationship with God by His grace? And if you're in a relationship with God, you know it. 
Now, you don't have to check it on a day-to-day basis. Well, wait, am I, am I in it today? It's, that's not what it's about because it's about his faithfulness, his covenanting with you, his, his grace toward you in the end. But let me say, the word of God is intended to help us walk in a relationship with the God of the word. That's what it's good for. The word of God is intended to help us to walk in relationship with the God of the word. Not to be our relationship with him. That's what we should be looking for through God's word. So Paul continues with the guilt of the self-confident Jewish person by addressing hypothetical objections. We see that without Jesus' righteousness, we are condemned no matter what our excuse. And he says there is certainly an advantage for the Jew. First of all, they have what he calls here the oracles of God. In your translation before you, it might say the words of God, the truth of God. That's what oracles mean, divine words of God. And David says in that same psalm of confession, Psalm 51, how how is it that he knew that he was a sinner? It's because God's word came to him both in the scriptures and in the prophet Nathan, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So Paul is answering arguments against his gospel. Arguments against saying, well, well it, isn't this what you're teaching, Paul? And his responses are simply, uh-uh, no, I, I'm not. Now, he will unpack these arguments later in the book of Romans. But he's saying here, no, that's not what I'm teaching. For instance, we see in the question here, basically, doesn't the gospel undermine God's covenant with the Jews? And his response here is that Jews are not a part of the covenant with God just by birth. It's a blessing that they have God's truth. And and that in itself is a part of the covenant. So no, it's not like, well, because it didn't pan out between uh, one, a Jewish person and, and God in, in knowing him as their savior, Paul's saying, hey, yeah, there's benefit here, but you don't have God by the, by the arm here. You know, it's kind of like, Special instructions given to a child. It's not just intended to make them feel special. It's meant to be obeyed. You know, if you were to just say, hey, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to give you this responsibility because I trust you or, or because, you know, you're the oldest. 
you need to do this. What if that child just walks away and says, that's sweet. I am the one that got that special instruction because I'm the oldest. I, don't, I can't remember a thing of what they said for me to do, but I must be special. That's kind of the argument that Paul's making here. He's saying, it was meant to be obeyed. But at the same time, there's no way you were going to be able to do it. And, and I, I'm going to skip past these other arguments that are made and answered here because they, eh, I, I can give you my notes if you want to, if you're really curious, but they will be answered further in the book of Romans. We do see in verse, verse 5, but if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And again, he's saying, I'm, 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 I'm giving the human argument here. By no means. For then God, how could God judge the world? This idea that he's saying, how could God judge the world? The assumption of the Jews was, well, God's going to judge the Gentiles. And, and, and he's saying, oh, that judgment that's coming it's for everyone who is unrighteous before him. And that includes you. We'll see this again and again. By no means that Paul will argue back. Verse 7, it says, but if, in, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. We'll see in chapter 6 where Paul will open up and say, shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. There will be a back and forth of Paul with hypothetical arguments coming from objectors to the gospel as he writes out and explains it here. You know, I, I got an email this morning on my computer and it was, it was um, a, a report on the sex offender registry in Montgomery County. And it's so easy to, to look at something like that and say, well, God, I'm not like that person. I'm not like this guy. Maybe you sat glued to your TV or to, or, or, um, to your phone this week as we heard about the horrible tragedy of, of someone who worked right here in Crawfordsville of killing his niece and her son and taking his own life. It's so easy for us to say, oh, man, another person I'm not like, Right? That's not how God works with us. We will stand or fall based on our own righteousness. And I will tell you this, that no one outside of the gift of God's righteousness through Christ will be able to stand before him. No matter how many people they're better than. Quote, unquote. We have this tendency to, to treat um, 
kind of manipulate situations, kind of with good luck charms or something like that. I can remember in, in um, the Chicago area, I got contacted by the Fraternal Order of Police or something like that. It was like, so sir, if you will donate to our cause, you will receive a bumper sticker, which you can put on your bumper that says, I donated to the Fraternal Order of Police. And I'm sitting here realizing, okay, this is like some sort of talisman, you know? Police officer pulls up behind me. Oh, he's got a bumper sticker on there. I donated. It's kind of how things work in the Chicago area. <laughs> For these people that Paul is arguing against, they were treating their Jewishness, the covenants that God had made with their ancestors, as almost like a good luck charm. Like when God would come to judge, that they would be able to pull this out and say, whoa, whoa, whoa here, God, here's my card. Here's my bumper sticker. But we can do that with maybe sitting where you are. God, I spent 30 years in church. That's got to amount to something. Right? I gave X number of dollars. You know, or, or um, you know, I've talked to people and asked them, so, you know, where's your assurance of your relationship with the Lord? And this doesn't mean they don't have one. But if somebody says, well, I've kind of always believed, that's like, okay, wait a second here. Whoa, follow up with this. Because I want to know, has there been a recognition that you have no hope of, of having a relationship with God based on your own righteousness? And have you, have you received the righteousness that is available to you through what Christ has done in his death and his resurrection? If you, are you walking with him in his grace and his grace alone? That's my concern for that person. That's my concern for you, if that would be your response. Or, well, yeah, I've always gone to church. My dad's a pastor. You know, I go to church for it that my grandfather built. That's got to amount for something. The first issue that we must consider when dealing with God is this. What have we done with the fact that God himself paid for your sins by dying and rising again? What have you done with that? Have you received it as your only hope for salvation? Or is there, if there's any hemming and hawing around on whether or not you're that sinful in need of it, you're in trouble. If there's some sort of idea that Jesus combined himself somehow with your righteousness and together you make a great team, you need to be concerned that you may just not understand the gospel. Well, you don't understand the gospel. It comes back to that idea. Nothing in our hands we bring. Only to Jesus in his cross do we cling. That's our righteousness before God. Let's bow our heads.